right. How's everybody doing this morning? Uh, only a handful of you are doing good. I see. It's been one of those weeks. You all must be Eagles fans then. Is that it? I know you had a bad week. It was a, it was a pretty bad week. So uh, if you all would join me in a word of prayer real quick. Um, uh, our Father, we come before you this morning, and we thank you for allowing us to come together to worship you, to study your word, uh, and to worship you. Father, we pray that uh, in this lesson that everything that is, is said, um, that is true, that, that everyone here would cling to that, and that if anything is said that is untrue, that you would put it out of our minds. We ask, Father, that you will prepare our hearts and our minds to receive your word. Father, but most of all, we ask that uh, everything we say today will bring glory to you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So much stuff. Okay, so we are continuing in our Ask Anything series. And today's question uh, is, if God knew we would sin, why did he create us? So right after uh, Dave put out the poll and survey and asked you all, okay, what do you guys want to do? He sent an email to a few of us asking, okay, what do you guys want to do? And as soon as I saw this question, I was like, me, 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 pick me. I really want to do this one because I really like theology, um, which if you don't know what theology means, it basically just means the study of God. And... I really like theology, and I really like the hard questions. And this one here, it, it appeared to be the one of the hardest questions out of all of them. And then there were a couple other questions on relationships and stuff like that. And I was like, I don't want to do those. I really don't want to. So I'm going to hurry up and say, hey, I want this one. Uh, so I was the first one to actually write in, and I actually got what I wanted to do. So I was like, yes. And so we are going to be talking about If God knew we would sin, then why did he create us? Uh, So when I was beginning to study for this or look into it, uh, I was curious. I was wondering, okay, what is everybody else saying about this? What is the most common answer for why God created us? Uh, So I decided to do what most people do, and I, I Googled it. And there's an interesting answer that I came up with, but I'm going to give you a quick side note here. If you guys want to study about God, I do not recommend using Google, TikTok, or Instagram as your sources for theological questions. Uh, Just because it's, there's so many opinions out there and a lot of them are just really, look, TikToks, how how long is a TikTok video? 40 something seconds? I'm gonna answer this question in 40 something seconds. And Google gives you all the same answers from everybody because it just populates all the most popular answers. So I just did what I thought was appropriate and I Googled it and I wanted to see, okay, what is everybody telling us and what does what is the most popular answer? So this is basically a brief statement on what each of the sites that I went to, I went to about 10 different sites. And this is a brief statement about what these sites were saying was the purpose for God creating us even though he knew he would sin. And so what everybody was saying is that God places such a high value on our choices that he gave us free will in order for us to have a meaningful relationship with God if we, if we freely choose to love him. Uh, but the caveat to that 
to having such free will is it opens the possibility for us to choose to do evil rather than good. So at first, there doesn't seem to be much wrong with this answer, but the more we look into this answer, the more problematic it becomes. Uh, And so we're going to look at why this answer is problematic, and then we're going to see, okay, what, what should our answer be, or what should be the answer? And the first thing that stood out to me, when I looked at all these websites, was how little of the Bible were, they were actually using. There were a couple that were like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reference Genesis and the fall. And so it was like, they didn't really quote it, but they kind of referenced it. They were like, yeah, you know the fall in Genesis? I was like, yes. And I read a little bit more, and I was like, where's the rest of Scripture? We, we need more Scripture to be able to, to support our theological ideas because, well, theology is studying God. And how do we know about God? except through scripture, because this is what God has given us to show who he is and for us to know him. And so I'm going to look at a couple of different passages that actually disparage this answer here. So the first one we're going to go to is 1 John 4.19. So 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. Now the answer the internet gives us makes it sound like we can just love God because because we want to, but this reference doesn't make it sound that way. So I'm going to look at another one to give us a little bit more clarity. So we're going to look at uh, Romans chapter 5, verses 8 and 10. So verse 8 says, But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10 says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So this doesn't sound like we can just, you know, freely love God out of our own will or, or freely choose to love God. But instead, it says that we're enemies with God. So today when we think about enemies, we don't necessarily think about enemies the same way people thought about enemies back in the first century. So if you were to think about the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, and Rome, who was their, basically, their overlords, if you will, they were enemies with each other. And Rome was a very cruel people. They did very cruel things to nations that they conquered. And so the idea that Paul is using here in the book of Romans when he says that we were enemies with God, he was like, hey, you're cruel people. You're like the Romans. You are a very cruel people towards God. You don't just love God out of the nature of your heart. Rather, you despise God. And so these verses here, unlike what the most common answer is, is that, oh yeah, we're just gonna, we're gonna love God. It's saying, no, you don't, you don't just love God. You're actually enemies with God. You don't like God. You despise God in your nature. But Jesus has to come change your nature in order for you to actually love God. So the answer that the internet is giving us, there's some truth to it, but it's not giving us the whole truth. So I'm actually going to share with you what my, my thesis is for why I think God created us even though he knew we were going to sin. So here's my thesis. My thesis is that God created us for his glory. In parentheses up there I have knowing that we would sin. So God 
knew that we would sin, but he still created us for his glory. And so I'm going to use, we're going to use a lot of scripture today to try to prove this point, that from Genesis to Revelation, throughout all of scripture, it talks about we were made to glorify God. So my first example, I'm going to give two verses here as to why this is my, this is my thesis. So the first one, Isaiah 43, 7, says, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. I mean, I could call it a day right there and just say, hey, there you go, guys. Here's the, here's the shortest talk you're going to get. And just say, it says it right there, I created for my glory. But we're going we're to explain it a little bit about what does it actually mean. What is God's glory and what does it mean to glorify God? Uh, my second verse that I'm using to back up with my thesis is about why God created us. Romans 11.36, it says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So remember this passage right here, Romans 11.36, because we're going to come back to it later. But first we've got to ask the question, we're going to answer this question too. What does it mean to glorify God? And I believe John Piper puts it perfectly. So John Piper says that glorifying means feeling and thinking and acting in ways that reflect his greatness, that make much of God, that give evidence of the supreme greatness of all his attributes and the all-satisfying beauty of his manifold perfection. So if you recall that answer from the internet, it only listed one of God's attributes, which is basically God loving us or us loving God. That's only one of God's attributes. But what Piper is saying here, when we talk about glorifying God, we are talking about every single one of God's attributes. So if we are to know God, we must know all of his attributes rather than just one. So then in other words, our purpose is to know God and to make him known. So the question is, how do we know God? Well, through scripture. So we're going to start, we're going to look at, uh, we're going to look at Exodus. And Moses is asking the same question that we're asking here, like how do we know God? So here in this passage uh, is, if you recall the story of Moses, he's at this bush that's burning and that's God in the bush. The bush is burning, but it's not burning. It's on fire, but nothing's really happening in the bush. So Moses is like, hey, what's going on here? And it's actually God there speaking to him and he's calling him and telling him, you're going to go free my people from the, peop- from the nation of Egypt. And so Moses asked God, well, who should I tell them is sending me? So here's God's response. God said to Moses, this is Exodus 3, 14 through 15. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent you. Verse 15 continues. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, note that, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So let's break this down a little bit. We're going to look back. Verse 14. Verse 14, God says, I am who I am. But what does this mean What is God saying? He's saying, before you talk about me or do anything for me, 
be amazed that I exist. I absolutely am. This is first. This is foundational. This is of infinite importance. So what he's saying when when he says, I am who I am, the most important thing for us to know is who is God and what is he doing? And when he's saying, I am has sent you, has sent me to you, he's now making a bridge between his attributes, who he is, and his name. So in verse 15, where it says, Lord, with all capitals, that is actually, it it means Yahweh. And so in some translations of your Bible, you'll see it spelled out specifically Yahweh, or you'll see it in all capitals like this. So whenever you see that in Scripture, it's referencing this name that he gives Moses, that he says Yahweh. Now this name that he gives, this is a precious name, and a name that is to be revered. And so while we're looking at our purpose, we're going to first look at this name and what God says about his name. And so throughout all of Scripture, God talks often about his name, and it's connected very closely with us glorifying God. So we're going to look at uh, Exodus 9.16. So God's saying, But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So this is God talking to Pharaoh. This is telling Moses, tell this to Pharaoh, that I raised you up in order for my name to be proclaimed, for my power to be shown. And so throughout Scripture, God desires for his name to be known and for his name to be be proclaimed. So often through Scripture, he says, let my name be proclaimed. So I have a lot of other references I'm just not going to put up here because there's a lot. And in Exodus, so here's some of the references. Exodus 6-7. Exodus 7, 5, 7, 17, 8, 10, 8, 22, 9, 29, 10, 2, 14, 4, and 14, 18. Every single one of those says, I am doing this in order for my name to be known or proclaimed. So let's look elsewhere in Scripture. Okay, that's a lot of Exodus. Well, Psalm 106, uh, the second half of verse 7 through the verse 8. He says, they did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. So again, this is talking about the nation of Israel, right after they were freed from Egypt. When they came to the Red Sea, a lot of them rebelled. A lot of them were like, hey, let's build this calf and say, well, this is our God. And God was not too pleased about it because, well, he ain't no golden calf. And so what did he do? He showed them his power and he said, my name will be known. Then again, there's other references about God's name being known. There's one in Isaiah 63, 11 through 12, Hosea 13, 4, Ezekiel 20, verse 9. All these references refer to God saving his, the people of Israel for his name's sake, that his name and his power be known. You know, even God pours out his wrath in order for his name to be known. Uh, because if you can recall in the Old Testament... We did, uh, we did judges a little while ago. We see Israel messes up so often, and they keep going back to worshiping idols. And even after that, after they get a king, having David and Solomon and so on and so forth, Israel keeps rebelling. But what does God say when he chooses to discipline these people? Well, 
Ezekiel 36, verses 18 and verses 21. This is God in response to Israel keep rebelling against him, and Israel keep going to these, worshiping these idols, and basically what they ended up doing was sacrificing other people to worship these idols, and that did not sit well with God. He was not pleased. So he says in verse 18, he says, So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land for the idols with which they had defiled it. Verse 21, But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. So God says, by you worshiping these idols and you sacrificing these humans, you're profaning my name because you're my people. You're supposed to be an example of who I am, yet you have defiled my name, therefore I will discipline you for doing this. So we looked at a few references in the Old Testament. What does the, what does the New Testament say about God's name? Well, we're going to go to John 12, 27 through 28. It says, Now this is my, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then he continues, Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. This is Jesus talking to the Father. And he knows what's about to come. He knows he's going to be crucified. But he willingly goes to be crucified in order for him to glorify the Father. But we'll see later on, not only is the Father glorified, but Jesus, the Son, is also glorified. This is in uh, Philippians 2, 8 through 11. It says, And being found in human form, this is Jesus, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So again, he keeps talking about his name, that his name be glorified, that his name be known. And it continues from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament. Not just his name Yahweh be known, but Jesus' name be known, and that Jesus be glorified. The Son and the Father keep glorifying each other, and they glorify each other's names, and they're making each other known. So we're going to look at, uh, I'm going to read you one more passage here about the name of God. And then we're going to look at God's attributes because they're very closely linked. Revelation 15, 3 through 4 says, And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, all nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So here he's talking about glorifying God's name, but how are we glorifying God's name? Well, by knowing his acts and his deeds. But what are his acts and his deeds? Well, those are the attributes of God. So we're going to look at God's attributes. Now, the attributes that we're going to be looking at, these are what are known as the communicable attributes. And that's a, that's a nice fancy theological word that means these are attributes that God communicates to us that we can understand. So there are ones that we can't understand, like God being invisible. We don't understand that because we've never seen anything that is invisible. But we do understand certain things, like God being loving, God being gracious, God being merciful. These are communicated to us 
in such ways that we can understand it. So this is what it means for us to look at God's attributes and to glorify God through his attributes is by understanding what he's communicated to us. Now, for those who have your, uh, have your Bibles, whether it's a physical Bible or app, I'm going to uh, ask you to turn to Ephesians and follow me. Um, what I wanted to do, I was actually really tempted to do, is to actually read to you Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3, because they very much talk about who God is, what God is doing. Um, but I decided, you know, instead of me just sitting here and, and reading to you all and, and stuff, is that we'll read a little bit of it together. So we're going to start in Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to read some of that. And then Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to read some of that. And we're going to see what God communicates to us about his attributes. Um, while you're turning there, another side note, too. Uh, the first song we sang was talking about uh, who you were in Christ. And so, if you want to know who you are, and you struggle with your identity and who you are, which, I mean, that's, that's a really big issue today in our world, is our identities. But if you want to know who you are in Christ and what your identity is, read the book of Ephesians, because it talks a lot about who you are, especially who you are in Christ. And so, I'll just encourage you all that. So, if you're there, Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 3. And there's things that I want you to keep an eye out for. Things that God is doing for you. Things that God says about himself. So starting in verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Now, flip over to chapter 2. And then we're going to look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Starting in verse 1, he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus." so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace, kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. So there are a bunch of key phrases. If you go back to chapter 1, Notice the first one. 
uh, verse 4. It says, before the foundation of the world. So one thing that the question that was asked made the assumption of, if God knew that we would sin, why did he create us? The very first assumption that it makes is that God had to know something. This actually backs that up because it talks about before the foundation of the world, he chose us in him. So God knew even before he created the world. Uh, verse 9 also backs that up. It says, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. So he's talking about from the beginning of time to the end of time, this was God's plan the entire time. But now let's look even deeper in it. So these verses here, they affirm the first part of our question that God knew. But then also, notice God's attributes that are listed. Verse 6, God is gracious. Verse 7, God is a redeemer. Verse 7, God is forgiving. Verse 7 again, God is gracious again. Verse 8, God is wise. Verses 9 through 10, God is sovereign. These are starting to list all of God's attributes, who he is. Chapter 2, we see in verse 4, God is merciful. Chapter, four, chapter 2, verse 4 again, God is loving. Verse 7, God is kind. We also see that he's all-knowing. We see that he's all-powerful. And then also notice, how often does it say that he is glorified? Often. So the whole point of this passage here is that everything that God is doing, everything that he does and who he is, is about him being glorified. So, seeing God's attributes here, how do we glorify him? Well, we're going go, to go all the way back to the beginning. We're going to go to Genesis, and we're going to see how do we glorify him. So, Genesis, chapter 1, verse 26, when God created man, this is what he says. He says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the flesh, over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So being made in God's image means that we are to reflect his attributes and make him known to all of creation. Firstly, by being sovereign of everything, over everything that God created. So do you all recall the... Uh, Who's been to Impact Camp and been to Done Impact and everything? Okay, so you all know the fruit of the Spirit, and you know the little song and signs and everything. Okay, so we find that in, in Galatians chapter 5. So the fruit of the Spirit, as you all know, it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. If we live in such a manner... We are glorifying God because these are God's attributes because they're, they're, they're the fruit of the Spirit. They're not our fruit. They don't come from us, but they come from God. And this is how he wants us to live and how he wants us to show who he is. So when we're created in the image of God, not only are we to be sovereign over what he has created, but these are the attributes that we should be showing. But there was a problem. Chapter 3 of Genesis tells us there was an issue. It said we were not content in just reflecting God's attributes. It's kind of like this. You know the moon 
it doesn't actually have any natural light. It's just reflecting the sun. It's kind of like the moon saying, hey, you know what? I don't want to be the moon anymore. I want to be the sun. I want to make my own lights. That's kind of like us. We're like, you know what, God? I don't want you to be, I don't want to just reflect you or show your attributes. I actually want to be you. And so we rebelled. And what does it say in Genesis 3, verse 5? It says, for this is Satan speaking to Eve. It says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. We wanted what wasn't ours. We wanted the glory that was God's because we wanted to be like God. We weren't content in glorifying God by reflecting his attributes. We wanted to be like, hey, you know what? I actually want everything that you have. I want the glory for myself. But here's the issue with that, is that the weight of God's glory is a weight that we cannot bear. So we gotta go ask ourselves, because the question is that if God knew we would sin, why did he create us? And I'm saying, that the reason God created us is to glorify him. How is God glorified in the fall? God is glorified through the fall because all of his attributes are on display. Not just part of them, but all of his attributes. Here's one of his attributes we don't actually like talking about. Romans chapter 9, verses 22 through 23 says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory? God's being glorified by him showing his wrath. God's being glorified by him showing his mercy. If there was no fall, would we have known God's wrath? If there was no fall, would we have known God's mercy? Romans 3, verses 23 through 26. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. There's a real fancy word in there, propitiation. It's one of my favorite words. It really, it's actually got a simple meaning. It just means that God's wrath was satisfied. But how was it satisfied? Well, through Christ. So think about this. If we were talking about that our purpose is to know God and his attributes and to know his attributes fully, we who are in Christ are actually experiencing every one of God's attributes. We who are in Christ are experiencing God's wrath, but through Jesus, because he took God's wrath on the cross for us. We are experiencing God's justice through Christ. That's what it says right here. We are experiencing God's mercy through Christ. We are experiencing God's grace. We are experiencing God's love. We are experiencing every one of God's attributes through Christ. And through this, we can glorify God by experiencing all of these attributes. First Peter Chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, talks of our salvation and the work that Jesus has done and the work that he is still doing and the work that he will do. These passages, they reveal to us God's attributes that we would not know if the fall never happened. 
We wouldn't know wrath, justice, mercy, grace. We wouldn't know that God was a redeemer. We wouldn't know that God was righteous or forbearing. Forbearing means that he's being patient, that he is not punishing sin yet. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11, it tells us that the angels, this is really interesting, it tells us that the angels are amazed and long to look into the things that God is doing and has done for us. They long to know the attributes of God that we are experiencing. Because, well, if you recall, Satan was an angel and he fell, but is he being redeemed? No. Is he being shown mercy? No. Is he being shown grace? No. But we are. The angels, somebody put it this way one time, and I thought this was actually really good. Ask yourself this question. Do angels understand the song Amazing Grace? Wait. That's a really good question. Because if they're not being shown it, can they understand it? But we're being shown grace. The saving grace from our sins. That's something incredible. This is something we get to experience that is God's attribute that's not being shared with everything that was created. So in conclusion, here's this quote. This guy named James Anderson. He said, A world with no fall and no salvation is altogether less God-glorifying than a world with a tragic fall, but also a wondrous salvation. So think about this. God is so passionate about his own glory that he knowingly and willingly chose to create a world that would sin and rebel against him in order that he may fully, that we may fully know God, that we would know his name and his attributes. And in turn, in knowing God's name and God's attributes, that we would glorify him for who he is and what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. So when we say all that, this verse makes so much more sense. Romans eleven thirty six. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So you all are dismissed to your groups and your questions.